If you have your Bibles, you might want to keep your Bibles open today. We'll be in the book of Mark. We're back. Now, I, we were gone last week, and uh, it was um, good to be home. Um, we were down in L.A. to see our son, Ezra, and his family, and uh, had a great time with them and celebrating uh, kind of a Christmas there with them a little bit, too. But we made it back, and uh, we had a pretty exciting time on the airplane when it seemed felt like it was going down or something, and, um, but we made, it, we made it through that, and uh, it was just turbulence, but we're going, going Amtrak next time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we had a great time. It's good to be home, though. It's good to be home where it's cold. I don't hear any amens. That's, uh, and maybe snow. I don't hear any amens either, so okay, well, enough of that. Anyway, it's good to be home and uh, see the stars, and uh, I, I do enjoy the cold weather and all of that, too. Well, last time we were together was two weeks ago when we were in the book of Mark, and we were finishing up, we finished up chapter 3 and that section about the, the, the sin that is unpardonable, the unpardonable sin. What is that? It's something to do with the Holy Spirit. We talked about that, so I'm assuming you kind of know and remember a little bit about that. But there's three verses from the book of Hebrews, just before I get into the message for today. Three verses that I would just to speak about briefly that talks about those who commit what I believe is the unpardonable sin. So this is three uh, examples of it. And I'm just going to read these for you. The references, I think they'll put those up on the screen, just the references. But it's Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. It's talking about those um, who rejected apostolic signs and miracles. And it says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So it appears here that what he's saying is that there, is, there are some people who are not going to escape if they reject the truth that has come. They reject the truth that has come through signs and miracles in that first century. That was a part of the way that those miracles were affirmed was through those kinds of um, miracles, the showing that Jesus was in fact God and so forth and so on. If they reject that, then they rejected the Holy Spirit and they would um, appear to be lost here. How can we escape, he says. That's the idea. We can't. That's the point. The second set of verses in chapter 6, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, where it's another example of this, what I believe is the unpardonable sin here. Um, and it's about those who have rejected the truth they had tasted. They had tasted. It says, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now notice he says that they've tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come and they have fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify them to themselves the Son of God and put him to shame, open shame. So they tasted but they didn't swallow. I mean, we see what the implication is. They tasted of those things, but they didn't buy the whole thing, and so they would be considered those who had the full realm of truth to know and understand what salvation was and rejected it, rejected that course which the Holy Spirit brings, and therefore they will be lost. We don't know when that happens in a person's life. We can't determine that. Only God knows, but that can happen in this life before you die. There's one more... One more um, verse, 
Well, by the way, Judas is a good example of that, isn't he? Judas was one who followed with Christ for three years, and, uh, but in the end he rejected it all and he died and was uh, hung himself. Very sad story. The, the third simple example is in Hebrews 10, verse 26 and following. It says, those, this is talking about those who have the knowledge of the truth, but they trampled Christ and the Holy Spirit underfoot. It says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, I know that today it's not fashionable to talk about that kind of thing in churches some places and sometimes, but that's what Scripture says. It's a terrifying thing. In verse 28, it says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Talking about Christ here with the Old Testament in the background there. And uh, insulted the spirit of grace, it says in the last part of the verse. And then it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's very straightforward teaching we have in the book of Hebrews, New Testament, about what I believe is the unpardonable sin there. When does it happen? They don't know, but I know the scripture says it's when that person has gone all the way with all the truth and rejected it all and are, are lost. I've been reading a little bit about Richard Dawkins, you may know him, who wrote the famous book, The God Delusion. He's not a Christian <laughs> by any means, but that's his book. And he said this, I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's greatest evils, comparable to smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. That's what he thinks of Christians, the Bible, Scripture, God's Word, and so forth. So um, I don't know if he's received the full revelation of Scripture, but he's been around it, and certainly many Christians have debated him and so forth. Well, as we come to the Lord's table today, later this morning, we'll be observing the Lord's table. Those thoughts will be in our mind as we come now to chapter 4. Chapter 4, this is a parable of the soils. And I believe this connects with what we've just talked about and the unpardonable sin in chapter 3. And I think you'll see that as we move through. But this is a parable. It's the first parable mentioned now in... Um, Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is probably the very first Gospel written, even though it's not first in your order there, but it's probably the first one written by terms of time. And uh, we're just going to go through the first 20 verses if we can get through them this morning. Um, you gave me too much time to study while I was gone, so I got a lot of message here. We'll figure it out. Uh, in chapter 4, it starts out... Um, with the setting behind this parable that uh, Jesus is going to give. It starts in verse 1, and you're going to follow along on the screen. We'll put the text up there as well, or in your Bible. It'd be good to have that open. If you're in Saul groups, you really want to take some notes on this. There's some really heavy thinking in this for this week when your groups meet. 
It says, he, that's Jesus, began to teach again by the sea. Now, if you remember, Jesus was teaching by the sea because he couldn't teach in the villages anymore because too many people were coming. Everywhere he went, the, the crowds went from dozens to, to hundreds to thousands now. And there was no more room in the villages, so he went to the seaside where he could stand on the seashore. But even there, it was difficult. It says that such a large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching. Now we're going to talk about that. So the crowds were so big that he couldn't even teach standing on the beach. So he instructed, they brought a boat, he went out in the boat and sat down, uh, probably so he wouldn't fall over, there's a few waves out there, and he could use that as his pulpit as he spoke to the people who would not overwhelm him or run over him or cause a, some kind of a massacre. People were coming because they knew about the miracles. He had done many miracles, the setting it really is to be kept in mind. They had been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. But now, here comes Jesus, and he fits all the qualifications. He's got the ability to heal people, to cast out demons, to change the weather, to create food out of nothing. All those things he has the ability to do. And it's clearly miracles, and the people want some of that, and they follow him as they come. So this parable really now is given for the first time here, and... Um, this parable is also mentioned in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the Synoptic Gospels because of their similarity. It's not mentioned in John, of course. And um, actually, <clears throat> there are quite a few parables in the Gospels. There's at least 46, some say as high as 80, depending on how you count them. But Luke records the most and Mark the least, but Mark puts this one first in the list here too and they're very important to listen to they're very important to listen to they're significant and this one especially is because it's at the beginning so what's a parable what's a parable now well if you know it's a it's not a fable it's not a myth it's not a historic event it is a it is a practical everyday kind of story that you can set some truth beside and people can see the connection between the two. The connection, very simple. The word parable means to set alongside. So you have the, you have the practical piece of truth from everyday life, and in this case it's talking about planting seeds in a field, and then you bring the spiritual application of that in, in to uh, understand it too. So the first thing that Jesus says, I want you to notice, now in verse 3, as we move down to verse 3, the types of soils are now going to be represented and presented, I guess you could say. The first thing he says is, and notice what it says, listen to this. Now that is in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. Listen to this, he says. And um, he starts to talk and explains this. I want to say a word about listening. Are you listening this morning? Um, I read a little book once. We, all, we always talk, we talk a lot about expositional preaching, which is what I'm doing right now, verse by verse, explaining it and giving the application. But there is a place for something else called expositional listening. 
And I was reading a little book like that. It was on the train to Los Angeles, actually. And uh, uh, the guy across from me in the lounge car said, what are you reading? And I said, expositional listening book. And he said, is that about Christians and going to church and stuff? And he said, yeah. I said, yeah, you know. And he said, well, that's great. I know what expositional preaching is. And I was amazed that somebody actually did, you know, just out of the blue. And that's really what it's about. It's how to how to take that the next step in your life. And uh, just a couple of practical things about that when we talk about expositional preaching, we need to talk about listening also um, because we don't always listen. It's been said, but it has yet to be done. That's really a good quote that speaks about that. We need to do what has been said when we hear the message kind of things. Preachers are judged by the sermons and they preach their... Their listeners are judged by the sermons that they apply. So you see the connection. Joel Beek said, a sermon is not over when the pastor says, amen. That's when it begins. And that's your responsibility. So there are both spiritual and physical preparations before you come to church. I think that's where the first one is. Um, preparing at home, you know, get the kids' uh, clothes on before they go in the car and um, do whatever you need to do to get the hair combed. Plan ahead, you know, and read the Bible the night before, that kind of thing. Get yourself in tune and praying there. And uh, as the word is preached, then open your Bible, engage in singing and prayer and all the things that go on with worship. Take notes. You know, it's a good idea to take notes, unless you have a photographic memory, but a good idea. And then after the, the word's preached, discuss it with uh, family at home, with your friends, the salt group, those kinds of things. That's part of expositional listening, understanding clearly what is said. Okay, enough of that. Let's go on to verse 3 some more here. So he says, listen to this. The types of soil are going to be presented here. He said, behold, a soil without to sow. Jesus wants these people to understand this a parable. That's why he says, listen to this. The sower went out to sow, and he was sowing some seed, fell by the road, and the birds came and ate it up. I was raised on a farm, in, um, a wheat farm in eastern Washington, and spent a lot of years out there in tractors and combines and all kinds of equipment. But in, in those days when they planted the soil, they didn't do it with a machine, they did it with a bag of grain, uh, wheat in it, and then they would walk along and they'd throw it out and it would just fall on the ground, and hopefully it would, it would you know, bear fruit. They went out to sow, and... Um, some of it fell beside the roadside. This is a picture of the compacted soil of a road. Because um, fields were kind of long and narrow, and then on the edges there would be a little path where people would walk, the farmer would walk, and in the process of walking, they would cast the seed to the left and to the right, to the left and to the right. We did that a few times in a few places, but most of it was all mechanized. And... Um, there was a lot of traffic in those fields. People would come and go to the villages and that would pack it down and, you know, it'd make the ground hard. So when the seed hit the ground, it didn't, didn't germinate very well and the birds ate it off the ground and it was gone. So that's not so good. Then you come to the second kind of soil here. And this is shallow soil in verse 5. Shallow soil in verse 5. Other seed fell on the rocky ground. 
where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprung up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Kind of reminds me of the hills over there on Vantage where you go across the Columbia River on the bridge, you know. It's rocky there, isn't it? It's rocks and rattlesnakes over there. And um, if you go down very deep, even if there is soil, there's rocks underneath it. And that's the way it is in Israel. Some places the, um, the rocks are just under the soil. looks good on top. It's like granite or kind of a different kinds of stone that are underneath it there. And so it doesn't really grow well. It doesn't hold moisture well and so forth. And then thirdly, in verse 7, in verse 7 now, we have thorny soil. That'd be a little bit more like Gig Harbor, wouldn't it? Other seed fell among the thorns. Thorns grow well in places where it's wet, like the Cascade Mountains or the Olympic Mountains. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Thorns grow faster than wheat. Wheat is slow. Thorns are fast. You know, we have thorn bushes in our backyard. You can mow them all down. The next day, they're back, pretty much, you know? <laughs> so uh, the seed doesn't do well there. But then there's a fourth category here, the good soil in verse 8. Now pay attention, this is where the real, he, this is where the real meat of the message is. This other soil, this fourth type of soil, fell into the ground, soil, excuse me, the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. 30, 60, 100 fold. That's a lot of um, reproduction there. The average uh, reproduction I read was maybe eightfold. Eight to 10 would be really good. It would be really good because um, you put one seed in the ground and you get eight out, you know, that kind of thing there. And I brought a, a, I brought a little, um, had a weed here from our, our farm over in eastern Washington. I keep some there for remembrances. But, you know, one grain of the ground, one grain goes into the ground and then the wheat grows up and then you start counting the little baby pieces of wheat that are there and I started to count them. Kind of hard to count them. There's about 60 or 70 in this one. So this, so if all the grain that was put in the ground um, reproduced, uh, it would be 70-fold. So that's a lot. That's a lot, isn't it? But a lot of the times, some of the seeds don't germinate and they just die and the birds pick them up and so you don't get 70-fold even though normally you would. You would get 10, 20, 30-fold or something like that. It's really interesting. I've got a picture in my office of, uh, of uh, the thrashing outfit my grandparents had, the big stationary thrashing outfit. They had horses and, and all of that and they would cut the grain with the horses and bring it with a header box back to the stationary thrash machine where they had a steam engine to run that. It was about, it was about 25, maybe 30 men, a bunch of horses around and all these sacks of wheat that they would uh, get from that. And the soil around it looks like the Mojave Desert over there in eastern Washington. You know, not much growing. I remember my dad saying, you oh, know, they get a crop of 10, 15 bushels, that was really good. That was good. That's hard work. But with modern agricultural um, principles and changes, now it's quite common to get 30, 40, 50 bushels 
an acre from the same land. Things have changed. But even that probably doesn't top what he says here when he talks about 30, 60, and 100, 100 fold. That's pretty amazing. Now keep in mind that all produced, excuse me, uh, that all the fields produced the same. Not all the fields produced the same. Maybe the, um, the three first ones, some of them had germinated, this, that, and the other thing, but it was a little bit different for each one but they all pretty much kind of failed, except for the last one. And that field did produce, but even of the grain he mentions there, it didn't all produce the same. Some of it was 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. There are different levels of reproductions. And the disciples were wondering, what is he talking about? What is he talking about here? And now notice verse 9. Here it is again, one of those listen kind of verses, and he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So now Jesus is going to explain this wonderful parable here. And notice verse 10. Now he's going to talk about this uh, parable of the soils and the types of soils and apply them to them and to us. So this morning I have entitled my message the parable of your soils to make it, you know, apply to us because really these four categories are true of pretty much everybody, but which one applies to you? Which one applies to you? So in verse 10, he starts there, and he says, As soon as he, that's Jesus, was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parable. Now, you have to understand, they were alone, but not alone. They were alone in the sense that the multitudes had left. The thousands that had pretty much driven them down to the beach so he could preach out of a boat, they heard all of this and... Um, were looking for more miracles, and when they could see that there were no miracles coming, they were looking for thrills. They were thrill seekers in a sense. They weren't really looking for the Messiah in the full sense. They wanted something for them. It was all self-focused. But they left. They weren't really interested in the deeper things that Jesus is going to speak about. And they were gone. It says, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him. That would be the twelve apostles. They were selected, just ordinary men in chapter 3, we read their names there in chapter 3, they were selected, as well as some other followers. There were others who were now wanting to really genuinely know more and follow Christ. The 70 was one of those groups. Maybe they were there. So this is a much smaller group. It's gone from multiple thousands now to probably less than 100 people. We have to keep in mind in Jesus' ministry, not everybody responded even though the gospel was there. And that's the way it is today. You can do all kinds of tricks in church and you can have all kinds of come-ons for people to come and do um, things that would really make them really want to be there, whether it's, uh, you, you name it, whatever. But sometimes when it comes right down to the real meat of things and the word, they're not interested. They want something that excites them, something that, is fun, something that is not too um, sharp, 
and dealing with their soul and so forth, they leave. And that's what happened here. These people had all left. So, interesting things are happening. So, um, he says, um, they were asking him about the parables. That's just, the, these, are the, these are the sharp ones. These are the 12 and the 70 or so, and they didn't understand it either, but they wanted to know. That's the distinction between the two. They were alone, and so Jesus now takes the opportunity to speak to them. Their souls had to be brought to life by the Spirit, and that's true for everyone, because we are dead, says, in our sins and trespasses. And you know what? A dead person can't resurrect themselves unless they're God. So, tells us about our own inability to fully understand truth itself unless we plead with God for him to open it up with the Holy Spirit's. We are spiritually dead, too, before we come to Christ. The Spirit of God touches our life, it tells us in Ephesians 2 there. So, we don't know what their questions were. They started to ask questions to him. We don't know what they were. Maybe they referred to farming practices. Is this what you're talking about, Jesus? Or, or, or somebody else? Or the group that left? Or, or whatever. They, they really didn't, we really don't know for sure what it was. But, of course, Jesus could see their hearts. And he can see our hearts as well today, can't he? So in verse 11, it says, He was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom. This is to the 12 and to the 70 now, the ones who are like the true followers. You've been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. So from now on, Jesus begins teaching in parables. Every time there's a crowd there, he's teaching in parables now. He's not giving him, he's not teaching directly. He uses this kind, these kinds of analogies here as he teaches. Because some of those are not really interested in understanding those kinds of things. They just want the miracles and they want the free bread and they want all the things that the miracles brought and so forth. Probably when Jesus healed during his period of ministry, it probably was well known all over Galilee and, uh, and Judea later on, and there was a massive number of people that were healed, and you couldn't deny it. So it says in verse 12, so while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. So he's giving a quote here, he's sort of He's sort of giving an abbreviated uh, quote here from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And the other Gospels also mention, I think it's Matthew mentions it too, he gives a full quote, but here Mark, being the newspaper version of the Gospel, really just summarizes things for us. So now he begins to give them the word. You have been given these mysteries, he says to the, to the twelve and the others there. You're the ones that have been given the truth, and you're going to understand, so he, he wants them to listen to it. But he says, but those who are outside, who no longer are interested in this, they only want miracles and signs and all those kinds of things, they're only going to get it in parables, because in parables, they won't understand it. And you say, that's crazy. Jesus is preaching something that he doesn't want them to understand. What this is, 
What this really is, is a statement of judgment upon Israel because they had rejected him. It's already well into his ministry, and we know he's going to go to the cross. We know that's all going to happen. But they had rejected him, and that group that was there, the wider group, wasn't really interested in the important things. They were only interested in the, the fluff. Too much fluff in religion is not good. I mean, any fluff isn't. We, we want to have fun. We want to enjoy ourselves and laugh a little bit. Not a problem there, but I'm talking about the kind of things that they were thinking of. They wouldn't want to hear more about what those parables really meant. So Jesus was using the quote in Isaiah, which was a quote about a day future, which was the day right here at this time, it says, while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. These people didn't really want the gospel that Jesus was bringing. They still wanted the old, it wasn't really the Old Testament, it was a perversion of the Old Testament that they made into works. That's what they really wanted. And so they had left. So uh, the statement of judgment on the wider group of people who represented Israel. And the judgment on Israel is on anyone today as well who rejects the truth of the gospel, the simple gospel. Now verse 13, verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? He's talking to his, his friends here, there, the 12, and so on. Don't you understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So we say, this is an important parable, and I would say to you it's important for us too. If we don't understand this parable, we won't understand the rest of them. But this is a key parable, and that's why it's number one in the Gospel of Mark. It's also why it's, I think, probably about the longest parable in the New Testament too. Do you understand this parable? If you don't, how will you understand all the other parables that are given by the Lord? So it's key in all of that. And the disciples of every age, if they are going to come to true salvation, must understand the simple things that Christ gives like this. And much more than looking for shallow things and miracles and wonders and so forth. They need to understand the deep truth. So now as you look at this parable, just kind of step back for a second before we go into verse 14. Keep in mind that in this parable, we will see the sower is who? The sower is God. The farmer sower is really like God or anyone who gives the gospel. The apostles... Uh, other Christians down through the centuries who give the gospel, it's like our people who go out witnessing here and like you if you go out witnessing. We are the ones who are the sowers if you are a witness, if you are a witness. That's the idea. The seed, the seed is simply the word of God. It's simply the gospel there. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's, it's a, the death and the burial of resurrection and his, uh, Christ's resurrection. It's all about you must be born again. It's about believing by faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. So we have the sower, and then we have the seed, and then we have the soil. What is the soil? Is it the church? No. No. The soil is really a picture of man's heart. 
man's heart. You think of it that way, and it's pretty clear in some of the other references to it in other places. We won't go to those places. But um, it is man's heart. So the seed is sown into man's heart. In some cases, it's rejected and it's taken away by other things. But there is a time and a place when it is not and it is accepted and it grows and so forth. And the seed is powerful, powerful alone. I love Hebrews 4.12, which tells us that God is, is uh, the word of scripture is uh, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Talking about how it penetrates the heart and the rest of that verse there. And Luther said, speaking of the seed, which is like the scripture, he says, they have hands and feet and have blood in them. In other words, he's saying that the, the word of God just kind of, it kind of walks right in and it's alive. It's alive is what Luther was saying. It's both seeds and word. It is the gospel some germinates and grows in people and some does not. And Satan is always there to steal it away. So let's look now also at these a little bit more. And in verse 16 now, um, we see uh, the seed on the shallow soil is like those that are quickly respond with joy, but uh, troubles cause, it, cause them to fall away there. So he says in verse 16, in a similar way, those, these are the, the ones who uh, the seed has fallen, excuse me, seed was sown on the rocky places who, uh, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy and they have no firm roots in themselves, but they are only temporary and then affliction comes and persecution arises and they immediately fall away. Oh, I should have mentioned the compact, jumped over there, verse 14. The compacted soil there, it says the sower sows the, sow, sows the word, and um, the seed goes on the hard soil, and the birds come and, and take it away, and so forth, and so nothing really happens here. Immediately it happens, Satan comes and takes it away, kind of like the birds, kind of like the birds do there, that idea. And then in verse 16 and 17 here, the shallow soil uh, is soil that has rocks down underneath it. It's got dirt on top and you can throw it on that and it will germinate but it won't last long because there's not much moisture because it's shallow and there are rocks underneath it that kind of keep it from growing. And, and that's the way it is spiritually with some people. They will germinate quickly and they'll be joyous about things and so forth but it's rather temporary and immediately they fall away like it says in verse 17. R.C. Sproul <laughs> told the story about when he was in college and uh, he heard the gospel for the first time and his roommate heard the gospel and they both came to Christ and got saved the same night. And so um, they both had unsaved girlfriends, so they wrote letters to their girlfriends telling them what had happened. And the next day his buddy got up and abandoned the faith. Evidently, the girlfriend was more important than the gospel sadly to say. Unfortunately, in the dating scene, that's sometimes something I've seen where someone who is a believer is dating or considering someone who is not a believer or sort of a believer, and that person decides to get religious so that they will jive with the other person. That's it's very shaky ground. They missed the point there. 
So internally, they have no good grounding in this kind of picture here. They missed it by a mile. They missed it by a mile. We must keep in mind it's the Spirit that gives life. It's not something that we do. John 6 says it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But he says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And of course, Judas is one of them. And who it was who would betray him. That's who he's talking about. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. In other words, you can't even come on your own. The Father has to grant it. The Father has to grant it. You say, well, that's not free will. Well, it's interesting. I'll just say this. In the Bible, it's like two railroad tracks that come together in the sunset. In one set, we have free will. In the other set, we have the providence or the uh, election of God, those kind of things. And uh, it's both. It's not one or the other, it's both. But how do you explain that? I don't know. I'm going to find out when I get to heaven, you know. But they're both there, and I believe both of them there. Anyway, the least distraction sometimes comes when people hear the gospel and they may proclaim to be a Christian for a brief while, but affliction comes and affliction turns them away and they just don't really want it. It's not working for me, they'll say. Persecution comes. Usually it's because of the word, because they're a Christian. People might make fun of them, those kinds of things, and they can't handle it, so they back away and so forth. And um, they're, they're excited about the gospel at first, but they soon pull away from it because it's not, it's not profitable. By the way, if you're excited about spiritual things, they call you a fanatic. But if you're excited about sports, they call you a fan. I think it's the other way around, don't you? You sports fans won't like me very well after that. Anyway, but um, that's kind of the way it is. They don't have time for church. They don't have time for things of God and so forth. They pull away. So the third type of soil now is in verse 18 and 19. And that is really the thorny soil here. It's like those who hear the word and it's choked out by the thorns. So Jesus says, and others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word. They've heard the word. And the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, these three things, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And maybe you know somebody, and I asked you to think that way as you were preparing for your salt groups this week. Maybe you know somebody that fits one of these three types that we've talked about here, but this one right here is really, they, uh, the, the seed is on them, but the thorns come up, and the thorns are just like all these things. They're like the, the riches of the world that kind of distract people, and um, these various other things choke it out, and they are, what's the last word there in verse 19? They are unfruitful. Unfruitful. If the Spirit of God is in you, you should have some of the fruit of the Spirit, don't you think? but not none of it. 
Well, it's a scary thing. People become Christians. Pretty soon they're, they're overcome by the worries of the world. Like it says there, the things that, I don't know what the worries are. You can name them. You've got your own worries. You probably know what that is. It distracts you from those things. Riches in America, there's a great ability to make lots of money, I think, and, but that can turn people away from God. There's lots of stories about people like that. Turned away from God, they got wealthy. And the desire for things and enter into the, the, the thorns enter in and chokes them, chokes out the word. That's the gospel. That's the, what the scripture says. And they become unfruitful. But now we come to the fourth type of soil in verse 20. Verse 20. Now pay attention to this one because this is really key. This is really key. Um, there are four types here. And it's very important for us to just meditate on these and ask ourselves today, this week, which type of soil do I have? Which type of soil do I have? But the fourth one is in verse 20. It's the last verse. And those are the ones whom the seed has, was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Here you go. 30, 60, and 100 fold. We already talked about that. You see the, you see the analogy of, uh, of grain, how some produces more than others, but they all produce something. And, um, but... Um, it's fruit. It's like the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. So really in this, uh, in this particular story, the first three soils are soils that only make false converts. They look like converts, but they're not. And this, this particular parable is really about evangelism. And Jesus was giving it because as he would give this to the disciples, and to the 70 and so forth, this would, be their, this would be their mantra, this would be what they would learn on how to go and preach the gospel and they would go around the world and they would not be delayed from doing that. And it cost them their lives. It cost them their lives. So the first soil, it, all these three soils, actually they're all, the first three are only just, just false converts, people who appear to be like Christians. They might even go to church. There are churches that are actually filled with them, I believe. Might be some here. I think we have to be careful when we evangelize that we don't, we don't soft pedal it. True evangelism is not coming for signs and miracles and having a good time. It's repentance and sorrow over sin. But joy does come in the morning. We have to be careful when we evangelize children because they'll say yes to anything if they're going to get a sucker at the end, you know. And even so, they want to please their parents. We have to be very careful with children because otherwise we'll put them on the wrong road. Just pray this prayer after me. Do they understand the depth of what prayer is about? So it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It can be damning to cause them to go to hell in the end because they think they're saved, but they're not. No repentance, no understanding. But only one out of those four soils, only one really bears fruit. Only one. This one, by the way, is in the aorist tense, which means action, completed. 
So only this one that is in the good soil is the one who bears fruit. And the fruit bearer is the one who, notice he hears, expositional hearing, <laughs> and he accepts, and he bears fruit. Pretty simple, isn't it? They're all present participles there. This is both, there's both divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility there, but they're dead in their sins. How can they come alive? Well, God is the one that's in charge of that. And if you're concerned about being dead in your sins and you want to be alive, God's spirit is probably working in you and you need to just uh, seek him and pray and ask him to help you understand and grow in that, all of that there. They don't all bear at the same rate. You can see 30, 60, and 100 fold here. Some more, some less. We don't have to all bear this fantastic amount of fruit. But we all bear something. We all bear something. And my little sprig of wheat is a good example of that. So um, what about you? What about you this morning? What about you? Is your, life, um, ex is your life characterized by fruitfulness of some sort? Witnessing, helping others, interest in the things of God, prayer, um, teaching others, taking up service in the church, helping out, helping others next door, reaching out to people, um, supporting missionaries, praying, and on and on. Is it have some kind of fruit, or is it just kind of the farthest thing from your imagination and you're really caught up with making money and doing other things, uh, fixing up your house, your car, going places, traveling, those kinds of things? Is your life fruitful? Good thing to think of at the beginning of the year. What about your giving? What about your giving? Does it exhibit that? 10% is not about giving in the New Testament. Or old, for that matter. It's not really about giving. It's about taxation. That's really one of the taxation things because they lived in a theocracy. I always teach this in our, our uh, class for um, people joining the church. So when it talks about 10%, it's saying you need, to be, you need to be paying your taxes to start off with. You thought about that. Don't try to avoid them. I had a man in our class once, and after I taught that, he came back to me. He says, I realized I was wrong. I was trying to avoid taxes. I'm paying my taxes now. Praise God. Because that's there for the betterment of the greater society and so forth, and so it's a secular thing, but it's there for a purpose. But true giving is free will giving, and it's way more than 10%. It's different for every person, just like the fruits are different for every person. But um, we ought to be people who give, not just in the offering, but of our time and our, uh, I already mentioned our talents and those kinds of things, but there is a financial aspect of it too because we have examples of that in the New Testament all over the place. And some who tried to kind of skimp on that and uh, ended up falling dead on the spot, if you know the story in the New Testament of Ananias and Sapphira. It's a scary story if you think of it. But God does change people, doesn't he? God does change people, and I have some exciting news to share. I received a letter this week. 
And uh, it's on lined paper, and it's written in near perfect English and perfect penmanship. And um, I saw it, and I noticed on the outside of the envelope, it said, um, this is from a Washington State Correctional Facility, and its contents may be uncensored. You probably don't get many of those kinds of letters, but once in a while we do. And I'm not going to mention any names or where it happens to be or any of those kinds of things, just to be um, secure about this gentleman. But he was he talking to me, and he said, uh, he says, I wonder if you remember about some years ago, uh, I wrote a letter to the church here and, and said I was in need of a Bible, and I'm at the penitentiary. By the way, people who are at the penitentiary are not there because they've done especially good things. Let's just establish that. We know what that's all about, right? It, it's kind of like, the we would say that's sort of like the person who's ungodly, you know, in a way. But what I'm saying is they can change, too. He says, I, I wrote you a letter and I asked if, if there was any possible way that you could get me a Bible. I don't have any money and so forth, but I, I need a Bible and I'm a Christian and I want to study the Word. So we went out and found one and we sent it to him and never heard again until two days ago. He said... I'm writing to you once again, and if you would like so kindly to purchase for me another Bible, I would like a uh, NRSV large or giant print, because I can't see very well, center reference, columns, write letters, uh, red letters, and genuine letter, leather, so it will last a long time. Then he goes on to say that his other Bible got lost in um, transition by the uh, whatever, they moved from one place to another. And so he doesn't have a Bible and he needs another one. And he says, and if you're not able to do this, I will understand. Thank you. God bless you. Anyone buy a, want to buy a Bible for this person? This kind of gets me. Because it, it tells us how God can change people. And they have to be changed from the inside out. Inside out, God can change hearts. What does the Bible say about God changing hearts? Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one uh, is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Ephesians 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But later on he talks about being made alive there. Um, and raised up, made alive together with him and raised up with him. Talking about the, the miracle of salvation. For by grace you have been saved, it follows. You know the verse? Through faith, it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God not as a result of works. This is what the Reformation was really about, giving back. It's not about works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that they would walk in them. William Cowper wrote a poem about this particular parable. He said, Ye sons of earth, prepare 
the plow break up, the fallow ground, the sower is gone forth to sow and scatter blessings round. The seed that finds us a stony soil shoots forth a hasty blade, but ill repays the sower's, the sower's toil, soon withered, scorched, and dead. The thorny ground is sure to balk all hopes of harvest there, we will, excuse me, we find a tall and sickly stalk and not the fruitful ear. I'm not going to read the rest of it because I'm crying. <laughs> it's a little hard to read. But um, the point is made that God is the one who brings life. And when there is life, there is going to be fruit. There's going to be real fruit. He made him... It says in 2 Corinthians 5, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This was the message Jesus was bringing. Christ died for our sins once for all. The righteous for the, what? Unrighteous. To bring you to God. I want to ask our men to prepare the Lord's table and bring it up front uh, as we prepare to partake of that in just a moment. And then they'll wait here while we say a few more things. Every Christian should have taken the step of baptism, I believe, first, because baptism pictures being born again. If you're born again, you should have done that. And many times they did that that very same hour. Jesus said in the Great Commission, he said very carefully, very clearly, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the death, burial, and the resurrection right there. It's very simple. That's why baptism is first. It's the outward expression of your faith, very clearly. And so that's the first ordinance of the church. But the second one is the Lord's table or communion that we are preparing for at this very moment. So think about these thoughts as, as the servers are preparing and coming forward here in a few moments. Um, Jesus, of course, died on the cross. This was uh, during Passover and all of that, and he became the perfect lamb of God for us. So when we take these elements, they remind us of Christ's death. They remind us of his blood shed and his body also bread symbolizing one and the juice or the wine the other and so as we take it today if you are born again and you're obedient with the Lord and you're moving forward uh, and growing uh, and there's no immediate sin that's uh, bothering you you haven't dealt with then you should be felt feel free we don't police it we just tell you what the scripture says to partake of the Lord's table this is our church family the pastor last week said the church auditorium is like the living room, and we're all gathered together here to share in the Lord's table. So 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gave instructions for the church to observe this from time to time. It doesn't say how often, it just says from time to time. It says in verse 24 that when they had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, remembering what Christ had done. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till they come forth. So this is for believers. And those of you who have children, you, you, 
I'm sure know what to do there if, you, if there's any questions if, regarding that. But it's for people who clearly know they're born again and walking with the Lord and so forth. And if you're following Christ today, you're most welcome to partake of this. Because this is a time when we talk about our fellowship with the Lord. It's something we do from time to time because it's talking about ongoing fellowship with the Lord. So please meditate with me as I go down the front row in a moment. And uh, as I meditate, you can take your elements, but don't ingest them because I'll come back up to the pulpit and we will pray then and partake of them then. So please take these moments to think. And fellows, please go ahead and pass things out there.